Hi, everybody. It's Megan. I'm so glad to be able to bring this episode with Kelly S. Thompson to you today. What I realized when I went back and listened through it is that we never say the name of her gorgeous book, which is Still I Cannot Save You. It's about her relationship with her sister. It's not a spoiler to say that her sister dies. This is some of the most beautiful writing about grief and loss and death honestly, that I've ever experienced. I know you're going to love the episode. And if you do, will you go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating afterwards? You can do it by going onto the the page for Grief is My Side Hustle. You scroll down to the middle. I don't know why they do it this way. You scroll down to the middle. You'll see the stars and the reviews. Give us a five-star rating. Write a little something about how you like the episode. It really helps the algorithm shifts and people are then able to see the podcast when they're searching for words like grief and loss. Thanks so much. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon-Jarvis, and I have to tell you because you guys have heard me say to my guests over and over that I have lightly stalked them online in order to get them to come on my podcast. This is a table turn situation where my next guest lightly stalked me and I am so glad she did because her book is up at the top of my favorite grief books that I have ever read. It's gorgeously, gorgeously written. Kelly S. Thompson, thank you so much for being here today. I'm honored and I'm blushing. I'm really honored to be here today. I'm, I think when you're looking for a salve when you're struggling. Your podcast was one of them. So it was really what an honor to be here and spelled Megan spelled like my Megan. Well, we had this moment, we can tell the audience. So I got your book a while ago and started reading it immediately. And I think I was only like six chapters in and I, you know, called my assistant and was like, oh my God, this book. And I wrote to you and said, like, listen, I'm not even that far in. I just need you to know that the writing in this book is so beautiful. Like, I can't take it. It's so beautiful. And you can tell the audience what you told me, if you remember seeing my name with the same spelling. as your Yes. Spelling. So, I mean, perhaps I'll answer your question for you, which is how I came to the world yes. of grief, yes, which was that. Please do it. I lost my sister to cancer, but also lost her a couple other times along the way. I think the grief really had a lot of layers. So this book is about my sister and losing my sister, but also spells her name the same as you, which is not, you know, there's a lot of Megan variations. It's true. Uh, And I get very defensive about what is the right Megan. It's the one with the age, but I think there will be more of us with the age coming up because Mm -hmm. Princess Megan has an age. This is true. This is true. So I was always, you know, yeah, I'm one of seven Megans that you know, but mine is the one with the age. But it was lovely to to feel like I had a little bond with you to begin with that you're- Well, further, your last name is my mom's last name. I know. We have a lot of weird weird crossovers. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you just tell folks who don't have the book, but will get it? And I'm going to remind people that I always have multiple copies of my guest book. So if for some reason that you can't go and buy it for yourself, just let us know and we will send you a copy. Just tell us a little bit of your story. You know, maybe, maybe there's no such thing as a spoiler in a memoir when we know that you lost your sister, but just open up, open up your experience and maybe what, what had you writing this book? Well, My sister and I were really estranged a long time. We were only three years apart and she was a really great sister growing up. And then puberty hit and (laughs) Megan went one way and I went the other, but she really struggled with drug addiction for a long time in a lot of different forms. And it separated us for a long time, not just not not just because of the choices she was making, but it was self-preservation. She was just, it was killing me. And so years later, she ended up getting, she actually committed a crime and I spoke up against her in court actually, which was a really hard divisive thing in our family, but she got clean and she made a family and had a child. And then I think it was like having a child really made her 
finally start to see other people and how they moved in the world and and to make space for that and suddenly to be just a little less selfish. And I was ugly too in so many moments. You know, I don't mean to absolve myself of my own grossness throughout the years. We all make bad choices. But then literally the day after giving birth to her second child, she found out she had a massive tumor. Megan had cancer as a child as well. So it was, it actually turned out the cancer stemmed from all the radiation she had as a baby and the pregnancy hormones sort of kicked it into high gear. So she died just a year later with a one-year-old and a four-year-old left behind. Mm. Yeah. You you do, you take us into, I think like the hard part that needs to be said about what it feels like to love someone who's in addiction, right? Yes. It, it, And I've sat in this space with people lots and lots of times, and it's an and both sentence, right? That it's very, we, we want a Disney version of like, well, they're beautiful and they're lovely and they're kind and they're sweet and therefore we love them. But what happens when someone is in active addiction, what we experience with them is a lack of safety for of them and in relationship with them. It's not actually safe for me to be attached to you. And you start the book, you know, you, you are not gentle with yourself. You, you let us know that you are not the best version of the Disney princess either in this moment. And it just, you know, it sets the tone for, oh, we're, we're going to hear how this really is. Well, and I was reflecting back to, you know, reflecting back on at that point when I'm writing about the very first part of the book where Megan's deep into her addiction, you know, I think I'm like 22, 23. There's a lot of compassion that comes with age and Uh education. And by education, I mean like reading books, going to therapy, going to support groups, trying to understand addiction beyond, because like you said, the and, but thing is also... Megan used to say all the time, well, I'm a good person. And I'd say, but you have to also be one. Your actions don't always get to like be kind of washed under the carpet of your addiction. But also I didn't have a lot of room for compassion. I saw I was in the military. I saw life very black and white. Mm -hmm. And of course it's not right. And, and that's where the beauty exists too, is in that gray and the way you find your way back to one another or don't. I think a lot of people have said to me, oh, if your sister had died before, you know, of cancer or of addiction, before you found your way back to one another, you would be angry with yourself. And I don't think I would. I made the best, safest choice for myself at the time. You know, my sister was financially sucking me dry. I mentioned like as an officer in the military, my security clearance was at risk because I was in financial straits, helping her out over and over and over again. I made the best choices I could at the time, which I think is all we're all doing. Well, what, what I think is interesting, particularly about starting the story where you started is that you are walking us into something that, you know, maybe is hopeful for people who love addicts, like listen, recovery actually is possible for people. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, people can become trustworthy and they can become reliable and they can become safer for you. Of course, your story ends in a tragedy. So, you know, that of your sister dying so young, but there, but there is also what you're offering us that thing about grief. Julia Samuel calls us, you know, living grief, like living loss. There are so many people out there that are, their pain on Mother's Day is that they're estranged from their mother because Mm -hmm. their mother is still using and stole for them the last time. And it's not that they don't want to have a relationship. And, you know, people say those crazy things like, well, it's your mother, you have to blah, blah, blah. And you are also reminding us what it's like to be 22, right? And it was part of the frustration too was it all, Megan's addiction also created a real barrier between me and my parents because my parents were very unequivocal in their love. You know, that was their daughter and their child, but they enabled her a lot, which they admit to this day. Whereas I knew some of the same friends, I knew what was really happening. And I remember my dad saying to me like, well, she's your sister. And why are you always so horrible to her? And it was like, I'm not horrible. I just don't want her in my life because I can't. 
So it's also, I think we also grieve what we hope will be. And when that doesn't materialize, it's this added layer of pressure that we've put on our life. I got really good at just saying, this is what it is now. And if she can offer me this one moment, I need to take it. And I can't expect more because that's when I'm sort of adding to my own devastation in, yeah. in moving forward. Again, I think you're highlighting something that's really important is that the, you know, somebody's illness, their addiction, their mental illness, their physical illness impacts the whole family. Yeah. And it impacts each individual differently. And so therefore, once it's inside the family relationship, it's inside all of the relationships, right? So your relationship with your dad is partly about your sister's addiction and, you know, the way he handles it and the way you handle it. And And I just think you do a really beautiful job of helping us see that evolve over time, like, like everybody's pain. And I, I do think, I mean, I think about this a lot that I understood my mother so differently as an Mm. adult and a mother, when I became a mother, I had no way of understanding when I was 22 but I did not understand how she grieved for my father until she died Mm -hmm. because her grief when my dad died was borderline unbearable. She had been married to him for 50 years. I mean, she was bearing it, make no mistake, but there's all these statistics about people who die within two years of their partner. And when my mother died and the world fell out from underneath me, I was like, Oh my God, how did I not show up with more compassion and empathy. And I think part of it is you can't know what you don't know. You can't show up for things that you don't understand, right? Well, like Brene Brown says, you know, we're all just doing our best. Like we're all just doing our best. And sometimes our best is just waking up and getting to the next day. And sometimes that's still my best. And that's all I have to offer. So I just try to surround myself with people who support me in that, I think it was part of what added to my frustration with my sister was our parents aren't well. You know, my dad really struggles with trauma from the military, is a cancer survivor. My mom's a cancer survivor. My mom has pretty advanced MS as well. So it was hard to watch the impact on them and not have that feed this little nugget of hate in me. Right. Be angry at her for harming their, their health as well. Yeah. 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 But you know, until I'd have to go, okay, Kelly, like this is, she's doing her best and her best is waking up. That's it right now. And that's okay. Yeah. And, and, and in my most compassionate, that's who I want to be is to be able to say that person is doing their best, even though their best is harming me or harming people. That I, oh, I have right? my moments. Right? I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so you were already a writer. You had mm-hmm. already written another memoir. You were, t- I think, teaching writing, you're teaching yes. writing in the book. Can you just talk about the your relationship with writing and how, what that meant to you? Was it, you know, something that came, did the idea come afterwards? Did you and Megan talk about you writing her story? Like, how did, how did that all unfold for you? Sometimes I still look back and go, I wrote a book and started a second one and my sister was dying and I didn't once take an extension on a deadline. Like, what was I thinking? But I, I, I think anyone who's drawn to an art form, it's your way to cope. It's your way to understand what's happening to you. And, you know, I was in the military for 10 years and I was medically released for an injury. So my first book was about that time. And about a lot of the sexual harassment that I was facing. Yeah. So I was dealing with a lot of really difficult memories. And, and then Megan dying at the same time. Now, at least my job gives me the gift of freedom and movement in terms of where I live at the time. So I was able to be there fully for Megan. But I was deep in the editing process of the book while she was sick. So I knew it was going to come out after she died. And that was really hard. Yeah but it also motivates me. So when I'm really struggling with writing and dealing with a memory, and sometimes it does look like I'm sitting there sobbing at my keyboard, Mm -hmm. I remind myself there's someone out there who needs this book because I wrote the book I needed and couldn't find. 
I was really tired of every grief memoir I found. The relationship was like rosy and lovely. And I thought, what about when it's ugly, man? Because it's ugly sometimes. And how do you grieve people who have hurt you so deeply? Sometimes it's complicated. So I, my sister had sort of said arbitrarily at one point, like, I hope you'll write about us, you know, and sometimes I think it was her grasping at a legacy. My sister lived a very small life and I said, oh, of course I will. And then she got really quite serious and said, but like, you don't leave out the ugly parts. You like put it all in because my sister was also a domestic abuse victim. I mean, the situation surrounding her death, which I'll leave to the book because it's admittedly a bit soap opera-esque and juicy, was so horrific. And she still made so many poor choices around that to me, around her children, that it felt like it was falling to me in a little bit of a way to do the work that she felt she couldn't do, Mm -hmm. which was to stand up for herself. Mm -hmm. So she told me to write it. Don't leave out the ugly parts. And then she would bring it up all the time and around a lot of the nurses and Kelly's going to write a book about us. So I started to take a lot of notes. Cause I also knew that trauma does weird things to the brain and, and we forget things. And I started writing it. And then I think maybe a month later, maybe two months later, and I was her power of attorney and next and executor. So I'm doing like all the paperwork and everything. Yeah. And then I was like, you know what now seems like a good idea. How about the PhD? <laughs> and and a PhD, I wanted to do it in creative writing, but it it was because I was reading so many memoirs yeah. about grief and about dying before she died, while she was sick, because I wanted to inoculate myself to what it was going to be like. So mm. I, I talk in the book about at one point while she was dying, how I would like sort of obsessively go and read about what it was going to look like, you know, yeah. what's the body going to yeah. do? What's going to yeah. happen? The information was a sad. Yeah. yeah. But I also wanted to know what my heart was going to do. Sure. I know the mechanics of what's going to happen here, but what's it going to feel like? And I couldn't find it because every book I read skipped over the moment the person died. My book really sits there and it's hard and it's hard to sit there, yeah. but I really wanted to look at it. And, and I looked at this ugly, horrible experience we were going through together and said, like, where can I find a little bit of beauty in this? Because if there's one thing I'll say about Megan, she dealt with it with such humor and grace that I wanted to honor that yeah. and find a way to reflect it so that I could say to other people, look, everyone who tells you you're going to, like, move on and you're going to, like, carry it with... You're just going to keep going. And some days it's going to feel really horrible, but you had all this beauty and that you carry with you. So I, that was a long answer to a very simple question, but to say that I don't know how to cope with what I go through unless I'm writing it down and exploring it. And I've always been like that since I was little, I have an entire military barrack box full of all my old journals from when I was little. God. And, and I, every mover who moves us every two years is like, what's in here? (laughs) You know, and it's my 700 years (laughs) of feelings basically, but I really wanted, I wanted to honor my sister, but also I knew I wouldn't understand it unless I really held it up to some light. Well, I think, I mean, at least for me, what, what I do when I'm reading in general, right. It's that Cecil D Lewis quote where like, I am looking for myself inside a story and I'm always really humbled when I find myself in store inside a story whose content has Mm. nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. I didn't live this way. I'm not this person. I didn't have this relationship. But I think that's the power of what grief can really do is sort of like stitch the human experience. And, and, you know, you just mentioned that you're, that you hang out in the moments, the last moments of Megan's life. Mm-hmm. And what I would go a step further and say, you let us see her dying. Yes. And the pain of that and, and the way in which someone's body gets smaller and then their footprint gets smaller and their voice gets smaller and it all gets smaller until it stops. And to me, I am not able, I'm not saying there isn't worth in these books, but a minute ago I was saying, you know, I throw books across the room when they sort of like betray <laughs> me, 
listen, they, they didn't ever commit to not betraying me, but when they do, I'm like, we're, we're, I, I don't need to work any harder on this relationship because what I need is not in this text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't hold it against anyone because I really genuinely feel grateful for any time someone writes their story, but, but the real, the grit of what it's like to lose someone to aggressive cancer is not possible to tell the truth of that story without telling the physical experience of watching someone's body leave them. 100%. Fail. And so I felt the most appreciative. I mean, it's not like I didn't know where we were going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I felt the most appreciative of those moments and they're really deeply intimate moments. You have a scene where you talk about your sister's, you know, helping your sister take a shower. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have the physical capacity to keep herself up. You barely have the physical capacity to hold her and it's terrifying for both of you. And her body is literally broken and yeah. covered in scars and it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And I just, you know, that is the reality of, of pretty much anyone who has sat with someone who is dying of cancer, let's say. And I remember sitting there, you know, that's one of my favorite moments in the book Yeah, because there's this, like, I talked before about on, on the day Megan got diagnosed with her cancer, my husband was deployed overseas. And on that same day, I find out I can't have children. Bit of a day in our family. So I rushed down to go be with her. And I, but I always said that Megan really taught me how to be a mother, how to put what someone else needed before what I needed. And in that moment, what I needed was to leave the room and break down. But she needed me and I stayed. And not only stayed, but like, I remember I was using this washcloth and it was really tearing at her skin, and, yeah. but she didn't want to ask me to like put body wash in my hands and wash her, but I just did. Yeah. And it was so intimate and special this. And I thought, look, it, I mean, this is just ugly. It is an ugly moment and it's horrible, but also, oh, look at this that we get to have. Look at that. We love each other this much that I will be here. That's right. And, and I will literally catch you when you fall. And it was, you know, when you talk about that human connection of a book and seeing yourself, you know, this is why I instruct right now. And I'm a mentor at this creative nonfiction master's degree program here in Canada. It's the only one in Canada. And it is such a gift to help other people bring their stories into the world. But the reason I really believe in nonfiction and the reason I teach it and the reason I write it is because there's no greater thing than either seeing yourself reflected on the page or to find, like you said, to find yourself in that story, even though it's an experience you've never read, which is why we get you know, now that we're having such a breadth and depth of stories from people of all backgrounds, all colors, all religions, and we step into their shoes, you develop a whole new compassion that you wouldn't have otherwise. I'm having so much arm hand talking because I'm getting so passionate that I'm pretty much like making myself sweat (laughs) from like I'm in a calisthenics class or something. But I think that there's just no greater way to understand humanity than there is to really commit to sitting with a story and putting yourself there. And Megan would have liked knowing that it was reflected that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember my mom being like, I don't think she'll like people. You know, I I joke about her being, there's a scene in the hospital when I visit her and she's wearing a depends diaper. Yeah. Yeah. And my mom's like, don't write that down. And Megan had read it. Megan was still alive at the time. And I wrote it and she She was was like, why? I was wearing it depends. You know, like she was totally here for it. The honesty of it. I think we came from a family that was very, you don't talk about the bad things. Megan and I would be like, where do we come from? Because I make a living out of talking about the bad things. And Megan pretty much shouted it from the rooftop. So there's magic that happens when we collectively stand up and say, oh, 
sometimes life's hard. Yeah, well, and and it allows the people who need their experience, which they're not going to write about because they don't have the talent or the time or the inclination that writing is not their grief process. It allows them to feel validated and in this way that's really important. I don't know what this is the second time I've told the story in a couple of days. So I must be thinking about my mom, but on my wedding day, I was in my white dress. My husband and I have been together for four years. I found dating and the early parts of being in relationship really difficult because I was sort of in an anxious attachment style. And so I didn't know if he liked me enough. And then when he seemed to like me a lot, I didn't like him anymore. And so it was, you know, it was, it was sort of like that dance for, for some years. And so here I am on my wedding day. And my mother says to me sort of like offhandedly, she's had six kids. She's been with my dad since she was 19. And she says, you know, you think this is the most important day of your relationship together. But like, you're going to look back on this and just see this as a party. You're The two of you are going to go through things together that you can't even imagine that will be so much more important than this commitment ceremony. And I was like, fuck you, lady. Like, <laughs> like I spent a lot of money on this dress and this party. Uh-huh. I have a, but it did stick in my mind. And I have thought, you know, again, like my backstory, I checked myself into a mental health facility after my mom died because I, I could not cope. Mm -hmm. And when I think about intimacy, human intimacy, those are the things that I think about. I think about how I threw my back out and I couldn't get off the floor and how my husband was in that space with me when I needed to go to the bathroom. 100%. 100%. Right. And that's 100%. not what you're thinking about in that really expensive, pretty dress. And so I think part of what I felt so really it, like it brought me to tears several times is both the, the continuum of the distance at which you had to keep your sister for your own health and safety and probably for hers. Mm-hmm. And then this moment in the shower where she barely has any life left in her. And you're just giving her the human experience of like being clean, but it's in a way that really very, I don't know who else could have done that with her, right? Like maybe a nurse, maybe we let nurses do that, but it wouldn't have been the same kind of holy act that you let us into. And I think to me, like it makes me emotional thinking about it because there is so much brutal love in the process of bearing witness to someone that you love dying that you don't want to have to go through, but you would never not go through it. Exactly. Right. And I really appreciate you seeing that for what its intention was in that I wanted to celebrate that we were there together. Yeah. Having that opportunity. And we only got there by both doing the work that it takes to repair a relationship, which, which was to, you know, when our family was worried about like Megan, not being my maid of honor at my wedding and like all this stuff, we saw the big picture stuff and what mattered. And it was that when she couldn't get up, I was there. And that's what love is. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe also grace, right? Because I think we can love each other and, and be on the raw end of love and wish that Absolutely. we another way forward. But I, but, but also, you know, part of what's in your book is your parents often, and they don't always agree, but they don't always agree with you. They don't always agree with Megan. They don't always agree with you and Megan. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, sort of the wisdom of people have to formulate their relationships and it isn't a given that you guys were going to have those moments. It, maybe it was a given that she was going to die. It wasn't a given that you guys were going to have those moments. And so I just, you know, I, I was with my dad when he died. I wasn't with him the week before he died, but I was with him much of the time that he was dying. And I don't know that I, I don't know that I was able to bear witness in the same way for myself in my own mm. writing as I felt like, you are able to give us. And I just think, um, 
Yeah. And, and that's towards the end of the book. I mean, you had me destroyed earlier in the book with, with so many moments. I want to ask you something about something that's not in the book, actually. What, what I noticed, what I found the most difficult at different periods in my, both my dad dying slowly and then my mother dying suddenly were all the other people that are in my life. Like for me, that was clients, but it was also friends I had Tuesday dinner with or, and just the, the energetic dropping away. Like I just dropped those ropes. And when I dropped those ropes, some, sometimes that was okay. And sometimes that was not okay. Meaning the relationship didn't recover from my stepping away from it because I didn't know how to keep it going. Sometimes it was an excuse. The relationship needed to be dropped. And so I used this as an excuse, but, but I was really struck by like the, the micro-ness of your story. It really is just a few people that are in this with you. And I just wondered, is that the whole of the story? Did you deliberately leave out the rest of the relationships and whether or not looking back, if you had all the support that you needed? during that time. Does, do those questions make sense? Yeah. You know, it's funny that because my husband's still in the military, we move every two years, right? Like clockwork. Yeah. So when we moved to Ontario, we had been in BC, British Columbia for a long time. So we moved back to Ontario. He was away on a course for six months. He came back six months and then left for a year on this deployment. Yes. And then That's during that crazy thing for a non-military person. Oh, it was here. bananas. Like, it, what do you mean? If my husband's away for two weeks, I want to punish him. Yeah. So, so to hear that is like, oh my God. Well, and in that time, you know, Megan's pregnancy was taking up six months of that deployment right. and then her cancer and her surgery. Like it was just, so I had no support, but I was also, because we move so often, it's very hard to make friends and community. Yeah. I'm also, I'm pretty good at making friends and community, to be honest, I imagine. but I, I didn't want to. Yeah. I, and I talk in the book actually about really suffering with suicidality, actually, even before Megan's yeah. uh, illness. And yeah. she was the person who really showed up for yeah. me. So what was hard for me was I was losing my main support. Yeah. You know, my mom's my mom's illness is really pervasive and takes up a lot of the room. Megan was also in that abusive relationship. So it was like, there was only so much leaning that I could do. Yeah. So I lean on people I pay to lean on. <laughs> hey, there you for? Know, I yeah. turn to therapy, yeah. but there were a couple people left out only because it was like really muddying the waters in okay. terms of content. Yep. In particular, Megan's editorial choice. Yeah. It was more an editorial choice, but they were more so on Megan's side. Lots of people, Megan's mother-in-law and her friends yeah. really rallied to raise the children while we're, cause mm. we had to focus on Megan and they focused on the children and, oh bless their hearts, like every single one of them. So a lot of people really rallied to that. Yeah. But I think, and, and Megan's best friend was quite lovely too. Megan's best friend actually took the photo that's in the back of the book. Uh And she flew out a couple of times also to kind of both look after the kids and spend time with Megan. So it, it was a bit of a village at that point, but it was more so an editorial choice, not so, so, but did I have a ton of support, you know, other than when my husband finally came home? Not really because we were in this place and because I always work from home too, other than when I would go to go to teach, but I would teach my students and then I leave and I can't lean on my students. That's inappropriate. So I, I didn't have a lot of community and that was hard. And and then we keep moving in the middle of pandemics, which is also really hard to make friends. <laughs> so part of it might be that you are a bit used to that, right? Let, yeah. that, you know, there are people who are like everyone I went to high school with still lives on the street that, you know, and we all play tennis together and that's not, that hasn't already been your life story. But I, but I wonder about it from like a trauma therapy perspective. Cause I think about it for myself a lot that, I'll, that even though I'm 
the phrase I want to use is like new better. I don't know that that's the right phrase, but like, Mm -hmm. even though I have conscious education about how important it is to sort of like share your burden across other shoulders, I always found that really hard. And it's always at the root of the things that end up making my life really hard. A lot of what happened to make me ill when my mom died was that I actively chose not to share the burden, but also I was, I was really alone when I learned that she died. I mean, I had children with me, but I didn't have any adult support. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that probably wasn't a great choice for me. So I always wonder when I'm listening to someone's story, like, how do you bear with these moments? Like when you have to, when you have to show up for your sister because she's ill and then you're in the car screaming and crying Yes, by yourself or yeah. yeah, Like what happens to us after that? Because I think from a trauma therapy perspective, I would say nothing good. But when I'm, when I was reading your book, it didn't feel like that to me. It felt like something else because I have books. Yeah, that's it. And and I also have a really great best friend who lives Mm -hmm down, who lived down the road from the hospice. Okay. So my friend would say, come over and have a bit of a nap at some point. And Mm. I would get to her house and, and I also have celiac disease, so I can't eat anything with wheat. And she would like have a a corner of her kitchen sanitized and post-it signs to say, I've sanitized this and this and this. And she would, she bought special stainless steel utensils so that they wouldn't be contaminated like plastic. And she would I mean, there were a lot of obsessive post-it notes, like the wine's in here. I haven't touched this bottle. I scrubbed this glass. I use paper towel, you know, and then she would turn down the bed for me and just like, and I would just go have a nap and she remains like my person. But I, I really, Mm. I turn to books. This is what I know. And this is where I find comfort. And, and I'm shocked to this day, even like my first book, like, I produced that when I was barely awake. Like, I think I was literally barely putting a foot in front of the other, but I'm just driven. I'm driven by the, like I said, the people I know who are waiting for it and who will find themselves. I'm connected to them no matter what, whether in, in some way, whether they contact me or not, and often they'll contact me. Also dogs, mm. dogs get me through all of it. And pot roast who features heavily in my book. Yes. Who actually died of the same cancer as Megan a year are later. You, are you I kidding? know. Yeah. Because he was really devoted to Megan as well. Lived for her. And this dog had the gentleness of broke my nose once with his big head. Bull okay. terrier, like a, like the Spuds McKenzie dog. Okay. Broke my nose once. So that should give you an, and by accident, just turn this head. Right. Right. This is not a gentle creature. But with Megan, like, let me creep really gently over to you and snuggle you. And I remember Megan saying, oh, it's because I'm pregnant at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know. I've seen him with other pregnant women and I don't think that's it. And now we think it must've been the cancer. Yeah. But oh, the tenderness with her, like it was magic. And I've since rescued a new bull terrier who carries on the meat theme. I now have ham. Prime rib. Oh, because I kept calling pot roast prime rib. I kept being like, oh, where's prime rib? If prime rib dies. And I'm like, oh my God, his name is pot roast. But prime rib would also be a good name for a dog. That's the next one. That's in the lineup yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. Good. I now have ham. Excellent. And he is also perfect in every way. Megan yeah. used to say to me, like, I'm going to come back as your next bull terrier because it feels like a good life. I mean, am I like toasting his blankets up in the, in the dryer before bed? And yes, maybe. Yeah, Um, maybe. But nobody needs to know. We're not going to tell anyone. And while dogs need a lot of things, the giving is so unequivocal. It's like, yes. They love us so simply. Yes. So my, because I moved in with my parents when Megan was ill, because that way I could be, because I lived several, several away. Yeah. I moved in and I, and I had my dog for most of it and uh, the hospice let him come whenever I wanted. So he would come with me, sleep in there like a lazy potato. And 
the comfort of just like, I can bury my face in you and I can cry and you don't want anything from me. And I was thinking, you know, the other day, I have a section in the book after Megan died, where I talk about, I would go to the grocery store and see something that reminded me of her and be like undone, falling apart. You know what? We used to wear clothes that informed yeah. people we were in mourning, right? That's you know, right. you'd wear black and people knew. And it and it's and I had some line in my book like I wanted to wear a sandwich board, yeah. you know, that was like absolutely because I would just start crying and people would come up and yeah. and people are very off put by emotion. By, by a woman who bursts into tears for seemingly no reason yeah. in the prototype. Really cool with it. I just own it. I just like, I'm here, I'm having a cry. And I just say, yeah, I'm fine. My sister died. And then they go look at me weird, but walk away. I would have liked a nice little outfit, you know, just to like, say, look, here's what's going on. It's, it's like an announcement. We don't have enough of these conversations that that we, we turn away from them because they make us uncomfortable, but this is part of living. And it, you know, you touched on it earlier. It's a real honor to be with someone in their final moments and it's hard, but it is also quite the thing that forever changes you. So why aren't we talking about it? Except us here we are. After my mom died, after we packed up her things, we took this trip across the country, mostly because I couldn't sit still. And people had this sort of like, oh my goodness, what a great mom you are during COVID to take your children on trip. And I was like, that's not what's happening. I can't sit still. I And I remember being in Utah, which is a notoriously difficult state around alcohol. You can't oh, get alcohol. Yes. And I remember, I, I don't even, I my husband and I don't even drink that much, but I was like, we're going to make a drink. You know, it was like, we were trying to do things that would pass the time that was sure. mostly solitude. So I went into this liquor store, whatever they call it there where the alcohol could be purchased. And the woman was behind plexiglass. And I think I had just come from swimming. It was hot. And I had, I have them on now. I had my parents' wedding bands on as a necklace and you could see them. And I'm behind the glass. It was hard to find this place. I'm out of sorts. I'm better, but I'm still not quite myself. And this woman says, did you lose your parents? Cause she sees these two. I mean, she could have asked anything. Sure. And I said, I did, they died. And then she sort of like pulled up this necklace that had ashes in it. And she said, me mm. too. And like, mostly that's what I remember aside from the national parks in Utah. Mm-hmm. It's just this moment of like, she gave herself permission because she thought she knew something about me to have a conversation that was so so not common. I mean, it is still not common, even amongst my friends. It's not common to just acknowledge something that you carry with you all day long. And, and when I'm hearing you write about the books and saying about the books is reminding me that we write for the process of, of bearing our own witness to our story. Mm-hmm. And then the product, which is where the editorial elements come in, is the making of that story, paring down, sharpening up so that it makes sense to even people outside of us. And like, that's where your story becomes the gift to others is that they can look at it and say, oh, that I know what those two gold rings are. I know what that is. I know what that means. I've been in that moment. Well, I, well I, I was, that's like Fred. From my book, Fred, the Newfoundlander. Oh my God. So I changed everyone's name by yes, suggestion of, of a lawyer, except like yeah. my, my immediate family and my husband, except Fred. So I met this man. It's like a week after my sister died. And I went to Newfoundland because we had it planned. And it was the only province we'd not been to yet. And it's an island. So it's hard to get to. And and it's quite like, it's a lot of business to drive around it. It's a lot of you yeah. know, and bobbing and, <laughs> and we're, and you know, everyone is so stinking nice. You could just like, if you're looking Damn for them. that Canadian experience, yeah, yeah. Lands nice where it's know. at like their dogs, sloppy and nice, yeah. truly. Yeah. And I'm driving around and I ended up having a horrible ear infection and I go to the hospital. Joe drops me off so I can just get some penicillin and Joe yeah. goes and yeah. get to get some stuff for our next stop. And I meet this man 
and he's just like lovely and chatting with me and it's a horrible storm and we're waiting and he, and he kind of just starts chatting with me and he's there. He's just had knee surgery and he's chatting about it. And he asked what I'm doing there. And, and I just, you know, talk about my ear, but then he starts talking about his wife and his wife had died. I think it had been like eight years or something, but he burst into tears and started crying, but he didn't like, he didn't apologize. He didn't nothing. He just owned it and said, Oh, I just miss her so much. And then I start crying because Megan died a week before. And we're hugging, we're like standing there hugging each other, sobbing. We don't know each other. And I think, I don't know if that, if Fred knows what he gave me in that moment, which was just to see me in my grief and to make some room for it. We don't make a lot of room for people. You know, I, like, I think about my mom and my mom says, no one ever wants to bring Megan up to me. Hmm. And, and it's like, we don't want to, it's like, we think we're reminding people, oh, I don't want to remind them about it. And we had friends of our, truly like the jig is up, it's here. And we were talking about a friend of ours who, their baby was born, stillborn, sadly, and they had named him and were grieving horrifically. And we went over just, you know, to bring a small gift. And we asked about his name and what he looked like. And they said, no one has asked his name because no one wants to talk about it. And I think what a shame that is because they were still here. Like, and, and, and to think I'm not mired in, in any ways, I am hanging out here, my friend, yes, I am like, yes. you know, I think when I, when I started to do the PhD, my dad said to me, well, why do you want to just read? Cause I was focusing on books that dealt with grief. And my dad's like, why would you want to sit with this all the time? Like, why do you want to sit with it? And I was like, dad, I'm here, <laughs> I'm here anyways, I might as well make something of it. Yeah. And I read this really great book on anxiety. Which book on anxiety is it? Do you remember? First, we make the beast beautiful. Ooh, okay. I don't know this one. And it's like, acknowledge the beast. Acknowledge what's in the room. It is here and it is beautiful and ugly. And this is life. You know, like Buddhists are talking so much about life is suffering. But Mm. if you accept it and embrace it, it makes all the steps along the way so much more lovely and worth taking in. Well, and what I have found, you know, I've had people both in my DMs and people I know sort of be like, aren't, isn't it a bad idea what you're doing to continue mm. to talk about your own personal experience? And I, honestly, I don't even stop to really, va- I, it doesn't make me angry. It doesn't, I'm just like, I mean, that's kind of like asking someone who swims every day. Is that like a bad idea? Like for their rotator cuff, like, you know, it's, it, no is the answer. And no, I wouldn't be doing it if it was bad for me, but thanks for your concern. But I, but I also think, you know, we, we are talking about it. At least I am talking about it partly because it's not talked about enough. Mm. And I really believe that that is a mistake, a cultural mistake that we make. And part of the reason I'm grateful for people who are willing to tell their grief stories or come on this podcast or, you know, write a book is that it is a universal human experience that we have without voting on it decided is too much for us to be able to acknowledge. And when I say we, I mean, also me, that it's still awkward for me as someone who has had a thousand hours of conversation about grief and loss, read all the books, talked to the experts when like my neighbor's dad dies. I'm still like, should I leave a, you know, a note? Should I bring flowers? Should I do nothing? I still have the same, this is a challenge. I don't think that's going to go away. I don't think the idea mm-hmm. that it is really hard to face death is going to go away. I think the fact that it's really hard to face death should be something we shine a light on all the time. Truly. Right. And also, can we also like, you know, I remember Megan and I would make all these really sort of horrible, but delicious jokes about her dying all the yes. time. So I came in one day and she's on like a massive amount of sedation and I walk in and I was like, aren't you dead yet? And we giggle about it. And we, I know it's sort of horrible, but also like she loved right. it. But what are you going to do? 
she laughed so hard she snorted and <laughs> and my mom was like girls you know my parents were just horrified and and we'd say like our parents hate our death jokes but the nurses were like uh-huh they get it because yeah. they're dealing with it they're all doing the it all day they're doing and it i think day. we it was partly about really living until the last moment and mm-hmm. also to to I think there's something really lovely that comes from acknowledging someone's pain and just saying, you don't have to do anything except, you know, be, be there, be with them, stand by their side. And uh, so, so many great moments come from that. Yeah. My husband, who's like pretty impossibly wonderful is also a bit like emotionally. I got a haircut yesterday. (laughs) They can't say great haircut he says oh that's a lot better than it was oh no oh no and i was like that's That's a a, that's a complice salt as my friend rachel would call that oh i like that not good i know yeah but i was like that's a joe moment for saying that's quite nice but i i think that he was the person who just it in the what I needed is I'm also really good at saying this is what I need from you so I'm having a really hard time so here's what I need I just need you to stand here and be quiet and stand with me or I need you to distract me or I need you and and it's okay to come for people to come right out and say I mean and I'll say it to people in grief too what do you need from me yeah do you need me to come up with something and sometimes I'll just send them a little package in the middle of nowhere these little, the little efforts in life are the things that people really carry with them. I think. I think you show that too, because Megan is, is really delighted by the thing, you know, the neon nail polish and And again, we're not going to save her dying. That's not what the effort is meant to be. The effort is meant to be, how can we pass this moment with more delight than maybe would otherwise be here? And, and the kind of hard humor, I hear that a lot when I'm talking to grievers about, you know, some inappropriate reaction that they had or some person that was (laughs) absurd or something that was wildly offensive, but they found themselves hysterically laughing. And again, I think that's, I think that's about the energy wanting a way out. Right. Oh, I it, like that. It yeah. wants to come to the light. And so maybe it's going to do it with raucous humor. Maybe it's going to do it with anger and frustration. Maybe. And most of us, I think, have a panoply of experience of how it's going to out. It's going to come out. And I think one of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading your book is that because it is this little microcosm and I appreciate you answering like some you've left out, but also maybe that it really is what it was it was this little microcosm that there is a lot of understanding just of exactly how precious the moments are that there, your mother says it, your father says it, you say it, your sister's husband says it, your husband says it, her kids know it. And I, again, I think we can't get to a place where we can have those conversations if people are not willing to tell the truth about the brutality of what it's like to both lose someone and lose someone to illness. And, you know, otherwise then it all stays in the dark. And this was the thing that I really struggled with, with the book, because, because I do depict my sister's domestic violence, both on the receiving end and perpetrating it. Yeah. Which was such an acute sort of pain to witness. And And Megan was someone who just wanted love so bad. Yeah. She would have done anything to get it. And so I wanted to fill her with love and levity. I could not change the million bad decisions she was making in relation to her marriage and her children. I I couldn't fix everything that came before. I quote unquote, you know, the book is called Still I Cannot Save You. I couldn't save her from all those things. What I could do was be everything I could be for her and celebrate what made our relationship so wonderful. And, you know, when you talk about sort of glossing over things, I saw how much ugliness lurked when we continue to whitewash things and I will not do it, which is partly why I really own, you know, you talk about how I really own how horrible I was. I do because it's important because it's how I show how hard I'm working to be better and to grow from that. 
people right. make choices to not continue to grow and develop from that. So yeah. my sister really wanted to live in a bit of a fantasy of what her world was as it was ending, as it related to her family. And I couldn't take that from her. Yeah. Even if I wanted to, but what I could do is be like, you're right. You are loved. And here it is. And here it is. And here it is. And it's in the watermelon juice I will bring you. And it's in rubbing your feet. And it is in being here. Love is not hurting you intentionally. And that's all I could give her. But again, even, even if you came to the story of just being sisters and what we take away from it is what is it like to love someone who's making choices that you can't live with for them? Just that, just that through line is such a beautiful thing to show us that, you know, you're not pretending that you came to good terms and understood your sister's choices. In fact, you make clear that you kind of know what they are and that they're open wounds that she hasn't healed and she's not going to heal. Yeah. And I, and again, I think that's, the rougher side, right? Like it's not the Oprah fat pants episode, right? Where she's like, and now I'm wearing skinny jeans and it's all, you know, the end of the story. Like it's never the end of the story and it's always complicated. And we always have these hard feelings in grief. And I think sometimes we're just talking about the hard feelings of what it is like to lose someone what you have added, which I think is probably in every story, it's certainly in my memoir, is people are complicated. And so, um, you know, what I talk a lot about in my memoir is, you know, the year of my dad dying was the easiest year we ever had between us because I borrowed from my husband's experience of never having to be disappointed in my father never being hurt really by him, never needing him to be anyone other than he was. I was like, oh, I'm going to try that and just sit with this man. And it worked for me. I was not disappointed. I was not hurt by him in the way that I had been historically hurt. And we had this year of ease between us. He didn't write a book about it. So I don't know what my father's experience with me was. But I can tell you that I was able to like him. I was always able to love him, but I was able to like him differently. And I wanted people to see that as a possibility that, you know, we like, the Buddhist, you know, you suffer with the things that you have expectations of that once I dropped my expectations, I felt I got something out of it. And I just think you do that over and over in your book in a way that is, you know, really hopeful. So even if someone is not primarily grieving, I think part of what they're going to see in this story is what it's like to just be a complicated person who loves complicatedly complicated people. That's the most accurate sentence I've ever heard. A lot of As my dog is climbing into my laundry basket and like dragging it across. This conversation was just, it was Magic. everything that I hoped it was going to be. And I just really, I really am very grateful for your voice and your writing, which is extraordinary. So just thank keep, you. Are you, are you working on anything else right now? Are you, I'm working on a on a thriller, actually. Oh, what a lovely deviation from the heart and the set. Well, my dad's like, so you wrote about death and dying for several years, and now you're going to write about dying. Yes, but it's a feminist take. Yeah, exactly. I get to control what happens this time. Yes, which fiction. actually is is rather paralyzing. I'm sort of paralyzed by choice. Like, yeah. what do you mean anything can happen? Anything like, can what happen. Do I, what do I do with third this? hand? Anything can happen. I had a sleep study uh-huh. and, and the guy who was doing all the hookups of all the things yeah. and he was so lovely. And we had such a nice chat before. And I was like, you know, if you were creepy, how would I sleep now? Like <laughs> I'm going to bed. I know you're in there with your little, you know, your little infrared. Like, what do I do? Oh my God. This? Is that the basis of the novel? They're going to haunt us like Stephen King. People are going to be like, I can't sleep anymore. And it's Kelly Thompson's fault because you're welcome. Yeah. yeah. She's haunting. She's, and I'm definitely not having a sleep daddy stun because. Yes. Oh, that is so fun. And are you in, are you in the throes of it? Are you beginning it? Is it edited? Like what, what can we expect to know more? I'm about? just reading it now. So I'm just about to send it off to my agent. I'm also in a bit of a 
intensive residency teaching phase for two weeks. So we do like a two week residency. So I think it'll wait until the end of the summer before I send it to my agent, but then it's off to the races and something else to work on. I like to always have something on the go. Me too. Me too. Tell, tell us when it's out there, you know, I I will do look for it, but tell me when to look for it. And this has just been delightful. Congratulations on this book. Thank you for sharing Megan and your experience with us and just keep doing all the writing and all the living and all the Thank stuff. you for connecting with it in the way that you have. Oh, and I loved it. I just Bring me to your it. grief parties. I'm here for it. Awesome. 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 Thank you so much. Thank you, Megan. Have a, have a great all the things and, and we'll and be I